Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a Mental Health Researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research. And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems. And we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all. This week we have MQ Ambassador and Yoga Instructor James Downs. James is a member of the Gone Too Soon Steering Group, helping to shape the direction of MQ's next funding program as an expert by experience. In this episode, we spoke about the prevalence of eating disorders, the inclusion of people with lived experience in research, and improving your mental health through yoga. Welcome to our latest MQ Open Mind podcast. I'm absolutely delighted. Craig and I are delighted we've got another fantastic guest. We've got James Downs. And James is well known to all of us in the MQ family. He's been an ambassador for a few years now. And so, James, maybe as an opener, really, well, welcome, first of all. Hi. Thanks, (laughs) Welcome in. (laughs) And so, maybe as an opener, maybe can you tell us a bit about how you got involved in MQ and sort of more your your, men, your own mental health journey? Yeah, I think how I got involved is a bit easier because mental health journeys can be quite long and complicated, uh, although perhaps they shouldn't have to be. And that, I suppose, is why I got involved with MQ, because I think that there is a different story that we can tell about mental health and what we know about mental health is still growing. I think it's still in its infancy, really. And I think that there are so many charities out there and I've done a lot of charity work and I really passionately believe in a lot of the work that charities do. But I think MQ stood out to me as an organization to get involved with because it was something slightly different. Many of the charities I've worked with, they provide frontline services. And I think that's kind of once things have got um, to a bad place and those things are really essential. You know, people are where they are, they need helping. But I think MQ offers that sort of alternative, bigger vision of what these people's trajectories could be. And perhaps we could prevent people from getting to that point that they need that level of support. So I think it was refreshing to have an organization that had a different take on mental health. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think sort of building our knowledge and helping to create and shape our knowledge of mental health and what works for who is something that I want to be part of. I want to be part of that conversation. And I think people's lived experiences have to be part of that conversation too. No, I guess, no, I, I couldn't have put it better, I suppose, the, the role that or the gap that MQ was trying to fill when it was established, obviously, is it eight or, eight or nine years ago now, I think it is, or certainly around that time. And yeah, because MQ being the only dedicated mental health research charity in the UK. Uh, but I suppose that, that what's really interesting, I think, over the last, say, eight or nine years has been that growth and the importance and the centrality of lived experience and everything that we do in research. And I think that's been really, really, um, really incredible to see. And, and, and I think I like your point that we're still in our infancy. And I think you're right, is that mental health science or whatever way you want to describe it, we're definitely still in our infancy. But you, do, you have a number of other roles. So do, do you work with me? Do a lot of work with, um, obviously, Royal College of Psychiatrists, I think, and NHS England. Do you want to tell us a bit what, what you've done with in those roles, um, James? 
Yeah, sure. I have a number of different jobs. Sometimes I struggle to keep up with how many there are. Um, but I, I really like having a bit of a piecemeal approach to my work because I think partly because of having ADHD, I work really well doing a little bit here, a little bit there, um, if I can sort of balance it out. And like you said about lived experience, that's changed over the amount of time that I've been doing lived experience work, which is you know quite a few years now. And most of these jobs are sort of coming at mental health from that angle. And I think when I first started doing it, it was quite tokenistic. It was being on committees, just not really be expected to say anything. And I would say things and people would be surprised. Uh, and now it's much more about actively involving people in a way that's not transactional. And those kind of roles I've built up uh, and hopefully helped to shape how those roles are done. Because often still people are surprised when you come to things with skills, you know, rather than just your story. So I do things with NHS England around policy and eating disorders in particular. Uh, I work with Royal College psychiatrists across eating disorders um, and liaison psychiatry. Um, and then a number of different research projects that I'm involved with, usually from that lived experience angle, either sharing my own lived experience and thinking how to apply that to the project. Because like I said, for me, it's not really just about sharing a story. It's about what expertise can be taken from that and applied to a task. Uh, and then I help to involve other people as well, because I don't just want to carry on sharing my experience. It's not going to be representative. It's just my experience. So I try and facilitate others to be involved, things like running focus groups uh, and getting qualitative data to help shape how research happens and the kind of questions that we ask um, as well. So those things, they all sort of sit in that lived experience. Uh, but then there's two other things that I do. One is yoga and dance teaching, which I absolutely love, which I see as an embodied approach to mental health. And then I am also doing a doctorate in counseling psychology, um, which is a really nice fit for me because counseling psychology, maybe we talk about this a little bit more, has mm -hmm. kind of a, an explicit commitment to social justice, which is something that I really believe in um, and having voices that we don't normally have heard uh, incorporated into research and, and psychology and mental health. Yeah. Well, there's a lot there and so much there. Um, so <laughs> incredibly busy. So can I kind of come back to your last point about, so how's the PhD going? And what stage are you at in the PhD and what are you doing it on? Yeah, so it's um, a professional doctorate. So it's kind of half research and half clinical training. Same as clinical psychology, really, but it's counseling psychology, which not as many people know about. Mm -hmm equivalent but there is a slightly different sort of perspective like i said social justice and sort of emphasis on relationship less less clinical i suppose counseling psychology um and yeah those two parts for me go really well because i i like research i love research and have a sort of theoretical head but it has to be sort of connected somehow to to practice and that sort of incorporation of the two i think is really important and sadly from a lot of work that I do with professionals working in services, they've sort of been sold that they're scientific practitioners, that they're doing their practice and their research, and actually they're just doing practice because the caseloads are so high, et cetera. So I think that it's sort of really good when you can incorporate those mm -hmm. things. I enjoyed it. So I'm at the end of my first year um, out of three. It's been really, really enjoyable. I love being a therapist and working with students uh, in university here in Cambridge, mostly a CBT 
uh, cognitive behavioral therapy model. Mm -hmm. um, right now it's the middle of exams. So you go into the university building and you feel like your shoulders yeah. coming up. <laughs> it's kind of nice to feel like I can contribute somehow to, you know, maybe not students feeling the, the best they ever have done during exams, but at least sort of preventing um, things from getting worse. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. No, I think that's no, I think it's that nice great. Best of luck with the next the next two years. That's really exciting. And um, go back to just something you said about I mean the role you play and um, in terms of the lived experience stuff. And we're working together with part of this broader group on, on MQ um, gone too soon. And again, it's but I just do I think the role you and others play is just absolutely vital. But it's more than I think it's I what I think's been really good over the last 10 years or more has been not only having the different voices heard, but heard equally. And I think that's really, really important. I think we are moving in that direction, but we still have a longer journey ahead to, to ensure that the lived experience voice is as loud as it needs to be or should be. So I guess that's so personally speaking, a huge thank you for the, your contribution with the work that we're doing. And I know you'll continue to contribute. And, mm -hmm. So can maybe just bring it then. So I, I was reading an article you wrote, um, James, or you were interviewed for, I think in the in the Daily Mirror or the Sunday Mirror. I say mirror, really funny because I'm from Northern Ireland. <laughs> oh, you, did you say mirror or you say something different? Mirror, no. mirror. So there's an extra, there's some differentness, different pronunciation in Northern Ireland. But you know the, the newspaper I'm talking about, certainly. Yeah. Um, and so, so James, but in that you were talking about, so... So, so, so focus a bit into, into your journey. Your that I think article was just um, you were reflecting on the challenges you faced as lockdown kicked in. Do you maybe want to tell us a bit about that and 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 then obviously your um, uh, relationship? Believe me, I think it was you were discussed in in that article. Yeah, it's a, it's a good way in. Um, I'm trying to think which article because because especially recently eating disorders are more and more in the media, and I think that's a good thing in a way um but i can't remember who i was you know what i said to yeah, yeah yeah the article that you said um and talking about bulimia in lockdown i think like many people um with a range of you know mental health problems i found that i slipped back uh in the lockdown partly because the things that i was doing to be as well as possible i wasn't able to do them anymore so my foundation in terms of the progress that i had made with my eating disorder and recovery was rooted in relationships with other people being able to go out uh, and eat out in public and to not have eating as this sort of secret private thing that i struggle with alone um, and so obviously not being able to have contact with people with the pandemic was really difficult and I think the thing that it highlighted for me was almost a positive in that it showed the things that helped by not yeah. having realized actually those things do help. And a lot of my journey has been not having anything that really seemed to help. And so I guess that was kind of at least reassuring. And I did have a lot of skills, other skills to fall back on. And I suppose I wanted to share that story because I think we don't hear enough about these stories, especially eating disorders in men, especially eating disorders that aren't anorexia. But I also think that I recognized how privileged I was, I suppose, to have had some treatment in the past that was helpful and that I did have stuff to fall back on. And I worried about those, and I still worry about those people who 
perhaps encountered the pandemic and difficulties with food and eating for the first time. Um, and we know that from the data that's coming through now in terms of presentations in even emergency settings of people first time presenting with an eating disorder and they need emergency treatment. Like I worry about those people who perhaps couldn't get the help they needed at that moment or mm -hmm. haven't had help before. So it made me reflect on how far I've come in a way. And overall my eating disorder story started in my teens and was anorexia for a long time and then bulimia. But it also did remind me of sort of, okay, we can all be susceptible to slipping. What are the protective factors? I'm really interested in those. What does good health look like? I'm really interested in that because often we only talk about illness. And I was thinking sort of also about how far I still have to go. Um, and I'm very open that I haven't recovered from my eating disorder, that I don't have a mild eating disorder. Um, and I think that is important, again, to be honest about, but sometimes isn't met with mm -hmm. understanding, I guess. And so it's a bit, of, a bit of a risk sometimes because people struggle to hold this idea that you can struggle with an eating disorder and be a therapist, or you can have living experience, not just lived experience. Yeah. Often people ask, you know, in the media, the interviews that I've done recently. So how did you recover? What, what made you recover? I'm kind of like, well, what makes you think that I've recovered just because I appear in this certain way? So sometimes these lived experience stories are uncomfortable. Yeah. Maybe it's living experience and we don't really know what to do with that because it's not in a box. It's not tidied up and, and something in the past. But I think if we just have these neat, tidy or conventional stories of mental health, and we don't hear from people who are really in it or in a marginalized situation or in an atypical kind of situation then we don't expand and sort of push out our conventional ideas so i know that's a really long answer <laughs> um, about lots of different things but i'm i'm more than happy to talk about some of my my experiences with eating disorders as well um but i think that all of these things kind of weave together don't they and i'm always interested in what can i make out of this terrible yeah. experience rather than just it be this terrible thing that I've been through. Now you've raised so many important um, points there. One that struck me is which relates to your last point, but also um, to the living versus lived experience. And I think that is, you know, that's the living experience is now used more commonly as together with lived experience. I think that is really important because it recognizes, as you say, that's what the, what is recovery? How do you define recovery? We all have mental health. Our people will make struggle all their lives with some aspect of their mental health. So I think that is really important recognizing the present that this is the present and and, and not necessarily the past. But I'm just curious, then, James, on your sense of um, like things I think do have improved, right, in terms of the conversations. But but you made an interesting observation there about uh, bulimia is not taken as seriously. I think you said as as anorexia. So have you any sense of why do you, why do that, why that's the case or or what's your what's your reflection on that? <clears throat> I've got lots of um reasons. I think it's sort of a perpetuation of the historic sort of stereotype. So if we've always thought eating disorders anorexia, then you know that's what we're going to continue to think more, you know, and, and that's going to take a time to shift. I'm writing uh starting to write this month a chapter of a book that I'm doing with um somebody else about sort of discourses and nar narratives of mental health and illness and eating disorders, particular in men. And one thing that I'm starting to do is look back through the history of 
eating disorders and the evolution of diagnoses and things. And, mm -hmm. you know, anorexia has been sort of documented for hundreds of years, if not longer, in different ways, whether or not it's been sort of a medicalized thing. You can think of, you know, the Buddha thousands of years ago starving um, to the point where apparently you could see the, the um, spine through his stomach, you know, and that was for sort of ascetic spiritual kind of reasons, which are privileged as, as good. This is getting quite, you know, abstract here. But I think, you know, that could be seen as, well, that was medically anorexia, whether or not it was anorexia nervosa as a mental health condition is another thing. But bulimia is, you know, become a diagnosis in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah. Of course, we've got much further to go. And we have to remember that. I think we don't remember that. I think we sometimes fall into a trap of thinking this is it. And we yeah. have to already about mental health and this when you have bulimia it happens to this kind of person and it involves these kind of experiences and this kind of treatment is what's going to work well the research on that treatment has been done with people who are not at all like me who don't have the same experiences you know and so it's definitely not a finished project and it has to be open to change but historically you know, it's something that we're much less familiar with something like bulimia i think than anorexia and then i think also that point that i was trying to make about the behaviors of anorexia are associated with things we privilege and that we hold in high regard like self-restraint and control and any celebrity who loses weight will be praised you know um for it and complimented and i watched some stand-up comedy uh recently where the the comedian said like uh, and I've lost this much weight and there was the biggest cheer of, in, of the whole night for, for mm. that. Um, and I'm sort of like, what, why do we celebrate that? What does that say about what we hold here nice and high? Um, what do we not want to hear about? And what do we denigrate yeah. with bulimia? And it's such a sort of loss of control. It's messy, it's visceral, it's dirty, it's bodily fluids, it's stuff that, you know, it's wasteful, it's shameful it's invisible we mm. can easily stay behind closed doors so we have the choice whereas with anorexia it confronts us in the face of somebody's very unwell and emaciated and people comment you know so it's there is the option to keep it or push it behind closed doors or not invite it to come out and for me one of the biggest difficulties that i've had that has maintained my illness has been not speaking about it keeping it behind closed doors not being open and not having spaces to be open. Mm -hmm. And I think that giving voice to it and being sort of explicit about it, even if it doesn't always feel comfortable for me or for the listener is like my new kind of project. Cause I think that it's something that, well, at least I'm committed to it. Cause I think it's just something that people need to know about because even professionals that I talk to don't necessarily get it. Like they have, an idea of bulimia as a little bit of overeating, like Princess Diana in, in The Crown, which was, I think, a very inaccurate representation of bulimia. And I think I, I've said to a professional, like, and obviously I have to spend money on food for bulimia and that has a big financial impact. And they were like, what do you mean you have to spend money on food? No, where does the food come from to have massive binge eating episodes? And doesn't that have a huge impact, especially with a cost of living crisis. Mm -hmm. This was a mental health professional. So it's no wonder people in the rest of society don't yeah. know about the realities of it. And it's not just the word, it's what kinds of experiences, not in a prescriptive way that everybody's going to have the same ones, 
but in at least so that we have some kind of actual image or or feeling for what what that lived experience might be about rather than keeping it behind closed doors. So I don't know, even remember what the question was now. Well, no, well, <laughs> what, you, what you managed to do in the last three minutes is highlight the importance of the historical, cultural and social context of all mental health problems, doesn't matter what they are. So Absolutely, I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to reading <laughs> that chapter. Have you written the so suite? So have you written the chapter yet or you've just started writing the chapter? I'm just starting it because um, we not long signed the contract for this book. Um, so when's it, what's the title of the book? You get, or can you give us a shout out for the book so we can... It's, it's coming out like, oh, our deadline is December next year. So we've Go got... On, right. like, the title might change in between, but it's about discourses of uh, men's mental health. Um, and I did write a blog for Beat about um, different kind of stigmas for different eating disorders in particular mm-hmm. uh, and so like that's that's available and i talked a little bit about the history there um as well but i do think like even you know the religious and sort of moralistic ideas about uh certain things around food we see that all of the time mm-hmm. like if i bump into one of my yoga students in the supermarket with my shopping basket and the stuff in there that yoga teachers shouldn't be eating i hide it because i'm like mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, because we're, we're so e- easily sort of ready to judge other people on, on food and eating. And actually, a lot of research showing that it's not individual choices. It's all about the food environment and, and, mm-hmm. and environmentally and contextually driven. And, and I think that we need to detach this sort of personal individual blame and responsibility on, on one hand or blame on the other about our choices sometimes in our behavioral choices with things like food and exercise and stuff mm-hmm. it's much more complex it's much more bound by the environment i think and can you think of it like because what we're touching on really is some of it, right, the stigma but also the stereotypes and the misunderstandings but so what else can we do or in terms of trying to challenge that now you've talked about having different voices and diversity and so on but have you any sort of ideas on what we should be doing better or differently as a mental health community, as a the community in general, the media, what else should we be doing, do you think? Hmm. I think it's that telling different stories being really important. But I think it also involves being prepared to be uncomfortable, being prepared mm-hmm. to do something that might challenge the conventional sort of narrative um, and not writing it off as anecdote necessarily, but seeing it as a question of maybe more, more people experience this kind of thing than we thought. And... I think part of it means that some people, including people like me, might have to give up space a little bit or give over space to other people, which is something that I sort of see myself transitioning into more and more is that I like to facilitate other people's experiences contributing to things rather than it just be me all the time, because it really opens my eyes to the kinds of experiences that people have that Mm -hmm. are different from mine, but how there might be some you know, general themes or some universal underpinning like principles. So I think that, yeah, it it might be for me turning down interviews and saying, you ask this person who's not told their story Mm -hmm. uh, as much, but obviously you have to be, you know, careful about that and not putting pressure on people. But it's, yeah, if we are going to hear alternative stories and broaden out that image, then the media has to ask different people. Researchers have to ask different people, not just going to the safe pair of hands. I was once asked to do a piece of work. I won't say who it's with, but I was asked and I was told when that person asked me, oh, because you're a safe pair of hands. 
And I was uh, like, that's, that's great. Um, and it's lovely that you know that I'll do a good job and that I'll contribute effectively, et cetera. But isn't that denying an opportunity for somebody else to learn those skills? Because it is very skilled work to apply lived experience in projects. Isn't it also denying yourself an opportunity to hear from other people and to have a broader, more rounded knowledge? Because that's what this is about, you know, co-constructing knowledge from these different perspectives. And so, like, you know, maybe don't ask me or, you know, I, I did that piece of work because if I didn't do it at that time, nobody else would have been asked. And I kind of, I kind of knew that, um, but I don't hold on to that. I want to sort of disseminate this and sort of build structures where people can, can contribute. And so that goes across like journalists, researchers, mm -hmm. services, when they're seeing people, who are we not seeing? Yeah. Who, who, who we know experience these things, who are we not seeing? And it's, you know, written into say adult eating disorder services guidelines that they should be, and I know it because I helped write them, but they should be reaching <laughs> communities. They should, they should be, they should have the capacity, which they don't, I'm not blaming the staff, they, they should have the money to be able to reach out to particularly vulnerable groups. And, you know, that should be their work, not the work of the person suffering who has to come through the door. So we need a lot more of that as well. And thinking, all the time, you know, who, who else could I be involving because it's sharing and it's mm -hmm. increasing collaboration. Otherwise people like me will just, you know, get a bit of a career out of it. Great. Um, but we need to be bringing other people in um, as well. Uh, yeah. I totally agree with that. And I know MQ part of obviously the MQ ambassador program in some respects is trying to have that diversity of voices out there. And I know in Scotland, we've now, in the work that we do in suicide prevention, so we've, we've what, lived experience panel now, which are directly feeding into government and they're central. But mm -hmm. one of the guiding principles is again, just to address that, that point you're making, James, of ensuring all these, the, the well, I hate the term hard to reach because that's a terrible, it just means a term because we just, it means we just fail to reach these people. Is get, but to get those voices that we don't, always hear or often hear from we're really keen to do that in scotland and there's other examples so i think that's when i think one of the biggest achievements in mental health science i'd say we've made over the last 10 years is putting some of those structures in place but you also made a point earlier about and it's so true is that if we're asking people with lived experience to tell their stories what are the supports out there mm. who's there at the end of after the call saying, are you okay or whatever? And one of the things we try and do in these podcasts actually is check in with all of our guests just to make sure that everybody is okay because it it's, it's difficult talking about, about these issues. I'm just wondering, is there anything else we want to touch on in terms of mental health services? Craig asked about access for men, but you're saying at, at sort of at the base rate is per, doesn't matter who you are. Do you want to say a bit more about that? in terms of is it a postcode lottery um what are the waiting lists like and, and that sort of thing yeah i think i think it is a postcode lottery i think that there isn't that sort of standard of care that you can expect um with mental health you know wherever you are whatever your condition and i think that when we do have such high demand or you know demand sounds a bit funny really such high need of people deserving of, of care and such little resource to meet that, then what happens is that there's a funnel, isn't there? And there has to be a way of somehow getting the resources to the people who need it most. I hate this phrase, the people who need it most, because 
need is kind of need. If somebody needs something, they need need it and they might need less, but they still need it. So it's kind of like we do need to be able to meet everybody's needs as much as possible and to include as many people as possible and be flexible enough to respond to them while still having some kind of structure because that's a bit of a tension in itself. But when there's such little resource, then of course the threshold gets higher and higher and higher. Mm-hmm. So anybody who doesn't meet that threshold of somebody who's in my experience with, with an eating disorder you have to be extremely at medically risk to get uh, seen anytime soon. Um, unfortunately, in some places, I'm not discouraging people from asking at all. I can talk more about that, but I think it means that all those people who don't get that are sent a message either, you know, it's not overtly, but it's covertly a message that you're not deserving of the treatment because if you needed it, you would have it because need is a need. And so I think that a lot of damage is done there where people can start to think that they're not worthy, um, which we know really feeds into some of the core issues around many mental health problems um, and can make their condition worse. It can invalidate your experience as real because I felt that for sure, struggling with severe mental health problems and being told you're not unwell enough for our service made made me think, so am I imagining it, you know, kind of thing? Can I trust my own feelings? And that fed into a whole load of other problems around emotion regulation. Mm -hmm. And so this is not like a harm-free thing. It's not that you see the people, you know, people are getting seen and they get helped and everybody else remains neutral. They often will get worse. And we have to be really honest about that because if we're designing a system that can only see 10%, say, in eating disorders, or I'm not sure exactly um, the percentage, but it's not high, then we're also having to agree that the 90% we have, we're, we're agreeing to tolerate mm-hmm. their level of suffering and the fact that they might get worse. And I don't think that, that we should. Um, and I, th- I think that it sort of is a really, this kind of has a bit of harm built in, I think, and it doesn't need to be like that. So my hope is that when people do go and ask for help and they get a response that isn't quite what they want or what they think that they need is that that isn't internalized as mm-hmm. this is my problem because we do expect you know the experts to to know and to and they should provide um but it's more of a systemic problem um it's just unfortunate that people's lives are caught up in this um and held back by this um but it's not somebody's fault because everybody's life is worth tending to whether it's medically or not or mm-hmm. yeah um or mild so I think I think that yeah, resource is the big sort of elephant in the room. And just the last thing I'd say on that is that in mental health, I think we've been the Cinderella service, and I think eating disorders are the Cinderella service of the Cinderella service. <laughs> my experience, and in terms of research, and MQ's done great work on on that, and and highlighting how little is spent, particularly on things like eating disorders. Um, and we're kind of grateful for anything that we get, but I don't think we're very ambitious. Sometimes I think we're sort of like fiddling around with a fraction of the resources that we need thinking oh what new research can we do to work out how to spend this fractional resource a little bit better and to get a tiny bit more out of this meager amount that we have we're like playing around with crumbs you know and we need a big loaf of bread and i think that you can have as much innovation as you like and as many you know great little pilot pathways and things as you like but it's still sort of shuffling around inadequate mm-hmm. 
resources. Yeah. And I think that is like the big sort of elephant in the room. It's that sort of unsexy thing to say is that we need more money. Um, yeah. People hear that, but I think that we still have to be saying that. I do think that's important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think that the point you made earlier, James, about the services need to be validating of your experiences. Mm. And I think when they don't, then that's problematic. And I think that's not just an eating disorders. I think that's across the spectrum of, um, because the person who knows, who, who's the expert in their experiences is the person. Is the, and, and it's, and so yeah, so, so making sure we do, and we can and should be doing better. And obviously driving services grounded in compassion and um, is so important. I can say one, just one thing on that from my you know, experience is that when I've been and asked for help, like for example, I went to eating services again and was assessed in December um, last year. And they said to me after the assessment and everything, you know, it's a good, you know, good, good alliance, which is surprising considering I've got a difficult history with some of these services. And they said, you know, we can't offer you what we think you need. Um, and that's, that's because we can't offer it. Um, and we don't have, we're not set up for it. And that's not a you thing. Uh, I didn't take that personally. I thought, well, that's, that's the system. And mm -hmm. that actually really, really helped, you know, even though I didn't get anything out of that, it was really helpful to hear, actually, we don't have enough money to do that, or, or we, we don't provide this, um, particular thing. And, and I think that was validating. And I think mm -hmm. people can be, you know, professionals and, and services can be more honest in that way and say, mm, we just, we just don't have enough resources to see you. And it's not that you're not, you know, you're not important that you have to wait six months. That is, that's on us. I think that can, that can really help that honesty. It's a compassionate thing to do, I suppose. It's just yeah. admitting a little bit of fault, I guess, which, which I suppose is, is not always the culture of, of some services. No, I agree. I think that's been just being upfront and saying this is reality. And as you say, you're not you're accepting that it's nothing to do with you, the person needing a support or looking for the support. So, James, what is your image of the future of mental health research? Um, I have like a grand plan. Um, so I'll give you the edited highlights. I'll give you some highlights. Um, I think that we need to have this sort of cultural openness to the new and to like we've talked about diverse voices and diverse experiences and sort of letting go of thinking that we know it all already and thinking that, you know, we have this book. I like to think of it as a book of about, this is what we know about mental health. I don't have my book with me, but I sometimes use it as an example. And we've kind of done the first couple of pages, um, but we actually don't know it all. And if you drill down into that, you know, research doesn't include huge swathes of people who experience things that are emerging, even as we, sort of speak you know the, the, the sort of prevalence of different things are changing and we need to be able to sort of be flexible to accommodate changes in a rapidly changing world to write the rest of this book and to keep finishing off this um topic that will never be finished because the world will keep changing the social world the the environment and everything but to continue sort of writing and creating that knowledge that we have about mental health whether that's illness whether that's actual health, which is something that I think should be a priority. What is it to be well? That's going to vary um, for different people and cultures and different stages of life, all kinds of things. Uh, and also thinking about, you know, what works in terms of treatment and recovery for who. And so I suppose if we're honest about, we only know, you know, these first few pages, then we've got to create the rest of this knowledge together. Then the second question is, well, who's going to write 
that and who's going to be involved in the creation of that. And for me, one of my big priorities for mental health research is how can we keep building on these structures of involving and integrating lived experience into research? And how can that be supported? You know, those structures be supported. People need paying for their time. People need emotional support. People need training. It's not an unskilled kind of uh, job. And then also sort of thinking about, well, what is the role and expertise that comes from lived experience? And I still think this is something that we also don't know completely. Like, I think it's still a work in progress. And I'm always really upfront about that. Any piece of work that I do, I think, you know, we've got to leave a bit of space for evaluating how did this integration of lived experience work? Because we're still working out, you know, who do we want to be involved? That matters. But how does it matter? When do we want them involved in the research process? What do we want them to do? Which bits of their experience do we want to know about? Is it them telling their story and then the researcher takes bits of the story and applies it in that way? Or is it the person applying their experience to the piece of work? Yeah, and, and I still don't think we have it very well defined. We just have this thing of like lived experience. At the worst end, I've, I, I've seen it and I, I challenge it. You know, I think it's that tick box thing or we'll go and get some lived experience. Research teams will have all their projects set up from the beginning without lived experience involvement, perhaps, um, and then realize, oh, we need to go and get some lived experience as though it's something you just pull off the shelf and have a little bit of it in your project, sprinkle it on for seasoning and then and then sort of carry on. And actually, it's sort of no. <laughs> can it can it be participatory? Can it be reciprocal so that people with lived experience are getting something out of it? Um, I once was asked a question by a member of an audience of an, an event, should people with lived experience be named as co-authors? And I was kind of like, if they wrote it, if they contributed, yeah. why not? That's such a weird question. And so, you know, there's some hierarchies and power and that kind of stuff going, going on there. But I think that those are my sort of priorities. It's sort of having a responsive system to a changing world um, and having that sort of range of people involved in creating the knowledge that we have. And maybe there are specific priorities within that. I'm always going to be like eating disorders, neurodiversity, disability, hypermobility, genetics, because these are things that I'm interested in from my own experience. But there are, you know, every, people will have different and sometimes competing priorities. We've got to do our best to sort of serve them, them all, I guess. So yeah, those are my, those are my main things. But I think in terms of the lived experience stuff, we could do much more sort of grassroots research. I can't just set up a qualitative research thing myself um, if I'm not attached to a university, for example, but I have the skills and the knowledge to go and do research in the field or whatever, you know, and, and where does that go? You know, could there be a, a specific journal for lived experience? Can there be a process of getting ethics for people who are not attached to an institution which comes with so many privileges, but, you know, which I didn't have for a very long time. So I think being creative has to be at the heart of it. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that, I think that point about the, um, like the pragmatics of it, like ethics, um, I mean, it's a really, really important message. And I don't think we have a solution for that yet, except partnering with other organizations. Except I suppose some, like, Samaritans as an organization have their own internal board, but, but yeah, you need the connections with them, I suppose. But no, I, I really, really important. So I love your vision, though. I think that's a, 
It's an excellent vision, which if we can get, if we can meet even some of that, James will be doing really well. Can yeah, I maybe man. return to something? More, you, I think you sort of answered this, but hopefully it will segue into the next bit, um, which is, so you've talked a lot of, earlier about um, of your own experiences, but thinking now, you know, how do you sort of manage your own well-being? And I think the answer might have four letters in it. Um, but, it, but, but am I right in thinking yoga is such an important part of your managing your own well-being as well? As I know you do it, obviously, you're a teacher and stuff. But is that a key, key, key bit of how you keep yourself well? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I'm not as well as I would like to be, but I definitely sort of um, moving in the right direction. And I think that one of the big sort of breakthroughs for me was recognizing the importance of embodied approaches or just sort of the importance of being in, in a body that we are in bodies and that we're not just these minds sort of floating around that need to think better and then we'll feel better. And I think that that was a big sort of shift for me that unlocked a lot of progress and unlocks a sense of ease with myself. Um, and I think, you know, the word disease or dis-ease is, is something that's kind of fundamentally bodily, isn't it? Because it's a feeling and, and, and emotions, that's something I've really struggled with, mm -hmm. whether it's kind of not wanting to feel things and using food or, you know, things feeling out of control emotionally and, and sort of destroying then my, my life, I guess, with these, these waves of emotions, um, using unhelpful behaviors and things. Feelings are called feelings for a reason. We felt mm -hmm. in, our, in our body. So I think, you know, there's, there's such a lot of resource here that isn't always tapped into in traditional treatments that I think, you know, we need to have a little bit of a rethink. So this is me being sciencey and theoretical about it, but I'll tell you about the yoga as well. But I think that, you know, we have these very top down approaches that rely on our executive function. So, you know, if you're unwell with an eating disorder, you have to go and sit in a room and talk about cognitive behavioral models of the way that you think um, and get really good at sitting and looking at the problem. Um, and hopefully then you change it a little bit, you know, um, the behavioral stuff is really important. Mm -hmm. but I think that certainly if you're malnourished, it's quite difficult to access some of those executive functions. Mm -hmm. Not that people should be denied treatment. Maybe they just need something a little bit different. Um, and I, I was denied treatment for a long time for that reason being too underweight. But equally, if you have strong emotions or you don't have that physiological baseline of, of e enough ease, then you can't take in this new information and i think we overlook that and i've seen that as as a therapist this last year is that if my client is extremely anxious or distressed or they're not in their window of tolerance as i sort of like to think about it um then we're not you know it doesn't matter if i'm explaining something psychoeducational to them or you know trying to break down thoughts into a flow chart or something you know and and then what can come in there i think is tapping into the physiology and the, whether it's the parasympathetic nervous system or whether it's actually activating yourself a little bit. Um, I think those things are so important. We have to think bottom up as well. So for me, it's yoga that I got into that sort of really helped me to come into my body because I was very detached from it, or I could only experience my body in extremes of completely detached or pain. So hold on, before you get before you get into the yoga stuff, though, just it's always good to get parasympathetic into yeah. every podcast if we can. <laughs> parasympathetic system rocks, but no, the serious point though is, um, so was there? Did you some revelatory moment when you when you the whole idea of embodiment 
and importance embodiment um, came came to you, but yeah, it's been really important for you. Yeah, I think it had a slow creep. It sort of was in the background for a while because I had eventually, after six and a half years of waiting, I had treatment for eating disorder. By that time, I had dialectical behavior therapy, mm-hmm. which is a mindfulness based therapy. And we were doing these mindfulness exercises in groups where I was like, oh my goodness, I don't, I can't tolerate being in my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just feels so uncomfortable. And there's something bodily about this. And that sort of planted a seed. And then for a long time, I wanted to try yoga because I thought mindfulness is really helpful. It was very, very helpful to me, but I kind of needed to be doing something. The mindfulness activities that worked for me were the ones where I was doing a little bit because it was kind of distracting enough, um, but I could also then sort of focus. And so I thought yoga would be great because it kind of be like a moving meditation, but I wouldn't let myself go until I was kind of to go by by an ex-partner because I kind of knew that it would be good for me mm-hmm. so I was like resisting it and so anyway I went to the I went to yoga for the first time late 20s and I think that moment of of embodiment that sort of click moment there was one often there aren't these click moments that people mm-hmm. love mental health recovery stories <laughs> but I did have one that's very cheesy is when I went to my first yoga class I felt like I was coming home and that mm-hmm. is really easy beautiful uh narrative make a good poem but i think it was not coming home to yoga because i'd never done it before it was com- coming home to my body in encountering my embodied experience in a way that wasn't shutting it off completely you know you think anorexia way of doing that or punishing and feeling it a hundred percent you know i really am alive now <laughs> it was somewhere in the middle and i felt like i could tolerate it and it was you know I had to leave in the relaxation when I started because it was just too much I don't do nothing over time it built built up and then I taught I've taught yoga for quite a long time these days I don't really practice much um, traditional yoga myself I teach Um, I do practice movement and exercise but mostly Mm -hmm. I think of it all as the same kind of thing really yoga for me means connection and that's sort of where the word comes from but I practice more resistance stuff just strengthen and stabilize my joints because after starting yoga and realizing I could do everything straight away, um, it was very, very flexible. Um, I was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a hypermobility mm-hmm. um, condition. So like, I'll, I'll show you, like I can pull everything out like very far and it doesn't hurt at all. So there isn't so much structure in my joints. So I don't need to practice yoga. I need to practice strength. But mm-hmm. for me, it's part of the same thing of this, being in my body in a way that is new and having that different experience of being in my body, not, not just those flipping to extremes, but I can be here in, in the ebb and the flow. And then I'm actually more attuned to my mental health because I can feel the emotions as they rise and I can respond to it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's given me so much more space between sort of, I guess, my reactions to the world around me and they've toned down a bit. Maybe that's just age as well. <laughs> that's a bit of a stereotype. But, uh, and actually my choice to respond in different ways and actually use the skills. Because I had, I knew all of the skills in therapy straight away because I'm an information hoarder. I would read, I, you know, all about CBT, DBT, all these things. Only takes you so far if you can't actually sort of be that mm-hmm. uh, to practice. And the 
body is the vehicle for all of our experiences, um, you know, for, for me. Um, so I think that that really unlocked a lot of other things that, that really helped. Yeah, I love that term just there. Was the the body is the vehicle of all our experiences? I think that's a really important message, but also that mind body distinction thing. I mean, it's we're we're one we're one being, and I don't think we've put enough um, focus on understanding really the that that reciprocal relationship between the two. I think it's so central. I could go on about that all day. I mean, I think like we talk about the mind body connect. I won't go on about it all day. Just half a minute. <laughs> the mind body connection all the time and I'm, I even don't like that because it's sort of saying if the mind and body are connected well the mind is here and the body yeah. is you know it's the in, integration isn't it but that, that is a huge priority for me for mental health research in the future is that I think we overlook the body at you know at high risk and I think we still do and I see it a lot in the in the psychology world and I, I sort of worry about it because I think we end up losing a lot of resource and a lot, mm -hmm. a lot and it's great that more and more people are interested um, and I think that the yoga embodiment mindfulness background really helps me um, going into training as a psychologist. Yeah. Much that we don't know, like the, the whole hypermobility, the genetic thing, how that relates to digestive system in eating disorders and neurodiversity. There's all lots of really interesting studies, some of them linked to MQ, um, that are looking into this. And it shows you like, oh, there is so much we don't, don't know about how these things integrate. Can anyone get into yoga? Yes, that's an easy yeah. question. <laughs> yeah, I think people have an idea of what yoga is. Um, I get so many people saying to me, I, I would love to do yoga, always with a sense of guilt, you know, because they should be doing it, but I'm just not flexible. I'm kind of like, if you try yoga, actually, most people are surprised by the strength, not by the flexibility. And it's all adaptable. People have an idea that it's have to have your hands on the floor, straight legs, so you have to do all this kind of stuff. It's about making it work for you and i think that that's the ethos of my teaching i know it's not not for everybody but it offers a huge range of practices that that if you find the fit for you it um it can hopefully be health giving or you know support your health craig are you have you done yoga um no i i've tried little bits i i'm i would say i'm double jointed but um the most i could do is put my leg be behind my my head yeah, but it's been uh, it's not bad. It's, that's quite that's quite advanced. It's been many years, and I would do that weirdly in in the middle of a classroom. I was just about to whip my leg behind my head, but I think it would just be inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Here, so just the last we're, time has beaten us almost. So the last two questions are a bit different from the we've been talking really about mental health and your experiences, your aspirations, and so on. So maybe two sort of quick fire ones to end, James, if that's okay. And they're a wee bit unfair on one level, but here goes. So, one, <laughs> so first one is thinking back to your 18-year-old self, what advice would you give them? Yeah, it's just so, so difficult. I think I was very unwell when I was 18, and I think that I was at a point, you know, I was supposed to go to Cambridge and couldn't go because I was so unwell with, with anorexia. And I think I felt like I'd kind of lost everything. And I would tell that person who thought that everything was lost that, yes, of course, it's really difficult. And you're starting from 
what you think of as nothing, but actually you still have all, a lot of things within you that with the right context and the right support can create so much stuff that you could, you can't even imagine in that moment. And that sort of life might not be the things that you thought you were going to do, but actually you will do things that you will like you will miss out if, if it had been straightforward and you'd just gone school, university, whatever, actually there might be, that might've been great. You wouldn't have suffered, but there might be other things that you've I've done now that I really value that I would miss. And so mm -hmm. I suppose that reminder that, you know, so long as you're alive and you have enough support, you can create something good, I think. Mm -hmm. No, I think it's great, great advice. And but then, so so some years ago, like you're well, early thirties now. I think are you in? Um, yeah. So so it's interesting then that you've you're now at Cambridge. You're back in Cambridge. I don't know if you've been, lived in Cambridge in the whole period of time. That's a nice sort of it was completeness a, to it. Yeah, it was a bit of a full circle thing. Like I did my masters here, and I like because I couldn't go. It was kind of the big thing that was taken away from me, and I I was doing music and. Like I gave up doing music and I came here to do psychology and I did eventually get a degree, very long story of dropping out of many things um, with the Open University who I, um, I'm a lecturer with them now. That's one of my mm -hmm. other jobs that I forgot. Um, but I thought my degree wasn't a real degree because um, it was with the Open University and it wasn't Cambridge and it wasn't this thing that was this unfinished business with Cambridge. So I applied to come here to do another degree, another undergrad degree. And found it a bit tedious because I'd already got a degree and it was like basic psychology first year. And I did the first year and then I was like, oh, this is so difficult. I don't like, I'm not enjoying it. And they said to me, oh, you can do a master's because you have a degree. And that didn't, didn't occur to me at all because I thought like it was second class kind of degree. Whereas now having seen Cambridge from the inside, I'm like the Open University has amazing materials, maybe slightly better than Cambridge. So like, <laughs> Open University is incredible. It's an incredible not university. Really. Like, I think maybe that's what I would also tell myself as an 18 year old, you know, the thing that you think is all that and is amazing, like one day you'll be, you'll have experienced it. And, and actually maybe it wasn't quite what you thought it was going to be. And other things that you've done are really valuable. Um, yeah. And don't write those things off. You can still have a good, meaningful life when you're unwell as well. You know, yeah. I haven't recovered and I still have many, so many things that I love in my life um it's not that there's this sort of you know exclusive thing that is either or mm -hmm. yeah. not great and then the last one and then we'll let you go uh, james is so if you could have a coffee with anybody living or dead who would your dream number one <sighs> this is the worst kind of question <laughs> yeah well i've made it a coffee rather than dinner so it it slightly easier maybe <laughs> you don't have to spend as much time <laughs> You know, so uh, I, I can have two. Okay, you can. Yeah, you can have two. This isn't Desert Island Discs, so you can have two. <laughs> I've got here. If it was, if it was just that we could only communicate through song, I would have Nina Simone. Ah, good great choice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, it's, it's just my friend um, drew this out of all different words of her song. Wow! Oh, oh wow! So it's like a That's word. Fantastic. That's by Gary Dad. That's a big, a big sort of um, promo for him. Um, and 
I haven't even taken it out of the the um, cellophane yet. But I, I fabulous range like the joyful songs and then the really sort of powerful songs and and like a whole range of emotions. And then if it's a living person and we could talk talk, um, I would choose Phoebe Waller Bridge. I don't know if you know her. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Background on my phone. That's how much of a fan I am. Um, yeah. And she wrote Fleabag uh, and. I yeah, I'm I'm trying. I'm thinking more and more people now. Well, no, she, no, she'd be a, she'd be a great guest. Actually, yeah. I would get coffee. Well, I would maybe I would go for more than coffee with Phoebe though. Every drink, drink, drink. But I really admire her because I kind of want to be her in terms of her creativity because that's something that's you know alongside yoga and stuff, creativity. And I've gone back to music now and I, I, I play music regularly, which I didn't for a long time when I was unwell. Like that is so important to me. And I see that as part of the mental health research agenda in terms of, you know, it is a creative endeavor. We are creating knowledge with, there are many ways to find that. Sometimes it's a creative artistic method. Other times it's your randomized control trial. Mm-hmm. I see a value for all of them and we shouldn't, you know, overemphasize um, some kinds of ways of knowing over over others but i think that some things are sort of only communicated through art and and songs and and uh wonderful stories and and i'm all about stories you know because it's lived experience so phoebe Wallerbridge and nina simone uh i think would make a great party great two, great, two great suggestions so no that's a great way way to end james on behalf of Craig and I and MQ, thanks so much for all the work you do as an ambassador for MQ, but also for sharing your story today on, on our podcast. Thanks a million. Bye. Take care. Okay. Thanks. Bye. MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research, the only organization that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated, and one day prevented. Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more.